I'm very optimistic about the coming year for the simple reason I know the one who's already been there. And I don't know what you're anticipating uh, for the coming year. I would suspect you would hope that things are going to go very well for you. Um, You might hope that economically things will turn around and that there will be a a real uh, positive move in the economy. I would imagine that as far as your health is concerned, you look forward to a year that is going to be uh, a healthy year and a year in which your your strength will, will remain. I would imagine that you're looking forward to maintaining good relationships and to having uh, family being drawn closer together and loved ones being drawn closer together. And all those things are good, but the truth is we don't know what the future holds. We, we really don't. And as the song goes, we, we do know who holds the future. But here's the challenge that I'd like us to deal with today. And that is, we know that the Lord has been faithful to us over this past year, 2010, demonstrated again the faithfulness of the Lord. And here's the thing. We know that he is going to remain faithful. He will remain faithful not to the things that we want from him. He makes no promise that we are going to have what we want. But he does promise that for those who are loving him and called according to his purpose, everything he sends our way will ultimately be for our good. And so we can face the coming year with the confidence that every promise the Lord has made, he is going to keep. We know that every intention that he has towards us is ultimately good. It is designed for the purpose of bringing us into conformity with his son. That is what the father desires from us and the the direction that he has us going. My question is this, will you be faithful? I have been so disappointed over the years watching Christian leaders, watching pastors who do not remain faithful and walk away from fellowship with the Lord. And though they are not lost, they do not follow in obedience and they they deny the truths that the Lord has established by which we should live. And here's what I know. I'm capable of that too. And you are too. There is no guarantee that we're going to be faithful. But there are things that we can do and truths we can embrace that will help protect us from becoming unfaithful to the Lord. And so here's what I would ask of you today. Would you be willing to put into practice those things that will help prevent you from failing in your fellowship and in your obedience and in your faithfulness to the Lord? I hope that you will. And I hope that that is what we will be able to leave here today embracing. I would suspect that there are times in your life you have thought, is it really worth it to follow the Lord faithfully? Um, Should... I continue to be faithful in light of the circumstances that I have faced in life. And I would suspect that we have been tempted. And, and you know, if, if we're going to be honest with each other, it, it would be wonderful to say that we're just really holy people and everything goes well and that we always make the right decisions. But you and I know better. We know we're not that way. We know we fail. We know we, we're weak. And we know that there are times we just become flat out discouraged. And then you say, well... Lord, I never want to be unfaithful to you, 
but by your grace, I want to remain faithful. Here's what I can tell you. If anybody ever had a reason to walk away from fellowship with the Lord, it's two men that we would hold in high esteem. Men who have sinful natures just like ours. Men who were weak and had the same passions that we have. But men who by the grace of God remain faithful in spite of all of the things that came their way. And those two men are Paul and Barnabas. Would you open your Bibles please to the the book of Acts, the 13th chapter. We read from the 14th chapter, but now I'd like you to turn to the 13th chapter. And what is happening here, let me kind of set the background. Paul, or Saul, at this point, it is still, he is still being referred to as Saul, and Barnabas have been set apart by the Holy Spirit and recognized by the church at Antioch. The Antioch that is actually to the east of the Mediterranean Sea. The reason I'm pointing that out is that in our study today, we're going to find that there are two different cities of Antioch. One is to the east of the Mediterranean, the other is to the north of the eastern side. And you have a little map there. You probably can't see that, can you? Those of you in the back probably can't. I, I hope you can. That's, pro- that's the best I'm going to be able to do for you this morning. But you see the little red lines? Have a rough weekend? Stay up too late on New Year's Eve? You see the little red lines? Those are the lines that we're going to be following in what is the first missionary journey that Saul and Barnabas are involved in. They are set apart by the, the, the church. They are, they are designated by the Holy Spirit and sent by Him to become involved in this first great missionary endeavor. There were missions works that were going on before this. Uh, I'm not trying to intimate that these were the first missionaries, but they're often the first ones that we recognize who are involved in, in an effort to move away from the central area of where the gospel was first being delivered. And so you have the two of them now beginning uh, a trek, as it were. And they leave Antioch, as I said, to the eastern part of the, the Mediterranean Sea, and they go down to the coast. And if you look at the 13th chapter... And and by the way, just so you know where we're going with this today, normally we take a relatively short uh, portion of Scripture to deal with, but today we're going to be looking at chapters 13 and 14. I hope you had no plans for lunch. Okay, you know what, that hits way too close to home. We will go through this relatively quickly, and I think you'll see what I'm talking about as we go. They come down to Salamis... Uh, or pardon me, Seleucia first. If you notice there in verse 4 of Acts chapter 13, the first place they go is Seleucia, which is the place where they board a ship and they sail westward to the Isle of Cyprus, what would be present-day Cyprus, and you can see on the map as, as they're going. When they get to Salamis, they arrive there, and the Bible tells us that it's not only Saul and Barnabas who are going, but now they're accompanied by a, by a, a relative of Barnabas's who is uh, named John, John Mark. We had actually been introduced to him earlier because of things that were going on at his home. 
And now he has become involved in helping the work of Saul and Barnabas. And so when they arrive there at Cyprus in Salamis, John is there with them. The Bible tells us that for a short period of time, they they spent time there in Salamis presenting the gospel, sharing with people what it was to to know Christ as Savior. And then they made a trek across the island of Cyprus over to Paphos. And when they arrived at Paphos, they were received there. And and I'm not going to take the time to read all this because it's a very extensive portion of Scripture, which I hope you will read on your own later today. But as they arrive at at Paphos, there's a gentleman there by the name of Sergius Paulus who wants to know the truth. But there is resistance to the truth that is brought by a fellow who is identified for us in the Scriptures as Bar-Jesus or Elemus is another way that that his name was, was recognized. And he was a sorcerer. And as Saul and Barnabas, who now are recognized in a different way. It is at this portion in God's Word where Saul's name is recognized now as Paul. And so this this nomenclature, so to speak, is changed. Saul is now Paul, same man, but given this different name. And something else happens in this. From this point on, he is recognized as the leader of this group. And he is going to remain in the position of leadership throughout the remainder of his life. And so now, Paul and Barnabas begin to share the gospel with Sergius Paulus and with others who were in the city of Paphos. But Elymas comes against them. And in his demonic um, empowering and in his satanic desires, he tries to discourage uh, uh, Sergius Paulus from believing the gospel. Paul rises to the occasion and directly confronts the sinful behavior of Elemas and basically brings down, I hate to use this terminology because we use it today in such light terms and we use it in in ways that are, are more superstitious than in reality. But in Paul's case, he brings down a curse upon this bar Jesus, but not a terminal curse. It's a curse that basically neutralizes him from, from preventing the work of the gospel to go forward in Pathos. And he says that for a time he is going to be blinded so that he will not be able to see. And the Bible tells us that this darkness falls upon him and he has to search for someone who would lead him around and would help him find the way. The Bible tells us that Sergius Paulus believes and he goes on to become a follower of Christ. When the work in Paphos was done, Paul, Barnabas, and John, they board a ship in Paphos, and then they sail to the north to a a city called Perga. Now, the the gospel is going to be spoken of there, but there is a bigger event that takes place at that that location. John, who apparently has become very discouraged, maybe because of the hardness of the travel. Uh, Traveling in those days was not a cruise. This was very difficult uh, and and very dangerous to be sailing in the Mediterranean. They made their way to this Perga and John, looking at the way things are unfolding. You know, I think he had kind of an expectation about what it's going to be to serve Christ. And boy, this is everybody's going to think really highly of you, and it's going to be really great. And we're going to have a great time. And then they find out the reality. There are people that hate you. 
because of your faithfulness to the Word of God. There are hardships that you have to face. There are sacrifices that you make. And John abandons them. All the Bible tells us is he goes back to Antioch. We're not told how he got back. Maybe he sailed again through the Mediterranean. Maybe this time he took the land route back. But he returned to Antioch and he left Paul and Barnabas. And that is going to become a real bone of contention later on in the lives of those two missionary evangelist individuals. After John left them, they made their way north to another city by the name of Antioch. And as you look at the map, you'll notice that directly north from Perga is Antioch. And this is going to become one of the the primary focal points of their opening up and sharing the gospel. When they got there, they went into the synagogue, which was the practice of Paul and Barnabas, to first give the gospel to those who were gathering in the synagogue as Jews. And if you began reading down at verse 13 of chapter 13 in the book of Acts, you would find that Paul gives here an incredible message. It is, I believe, abbreviated for us in this account, but it is so dramatic, especially if you were a Jew, because he begins talking about how the Lord delivered the people of Israel from under the hand and under the bondage of the Egyptians. He talks about how the Lord brought them into this land of promise and how even though Israel had been unfaithful to the Lord in their having taken this land, God sent before them judges who would be able to deliver them from the oppression of the people that would be giving them all of the hardships that they were experiencing. And that had gone on for 400 years. And then after that, the people began to cry out for a king and the Lord sends to them a king by the name of Saul who fails once again in his endeavor to be the leader in Israel and God replaces him with a man that the Bible tells us was a man after God's own heart, the sweet psalmist of Israel, whose name was David. And David became king. And from David came the one who would be born the Savior. Do you notice... Look down, uh, let me see, down at verse 23. Speaking of David, from this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. That message began to get the attention of many of the Jews. And interestingly, the Gentiles were listening too. When you read the remainder of what happened in that interaction between the Apostle Paul and the people there at Antioch, there is something very interesting that arises. Paul understands clearly that the only way people will pass from spiritual death into spiritual life is to hear the good news. And the good news is that though we are dead in our trespasses and sins, there is one who came and died on the cross for us. He was buried. He rose again from the dead. And he was seen by many witnesses. 
so that those who will place their trust and faith in Him will be justified. They will be declared righteous before God, not based upon anything that they themselves could do, but based upon that which was already done in the person of Christ and the benefits of that death and resurrection of Christ are appropriated now through faith. It is a recognition that says, Lord, I come before you as a sinner who is lost and in need of a Savior. And so I I relinquish a grasp on anything in which I was trusting for merit before you. And I reach out in faith and I accept the sacrifice that you gave in the person of Jesus Christ when he died for me. And he was buried and he rose again from the dead. And I trust him. And the people pass from death into life. That's the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to the Gentile. We still preach that same message today. 2,000 years later, our hope is not found in a church. Our hope is not found in a religion. Our hope is not found in a tradition. Our hope is founded and based upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ at the cross of Calvary, and we trust in His finished work there when He cried, It is finished. We cried it along with Him, and we said, We believe that there is nothing we can add to that which has already been done for us in the person of Christ at the cross of Calvary. And we pass from death into life based upon what Jesus Christ has done for us. That's as good as it gets. And that's exactly what Paul said. And he preached this message there in Antioch. And a lot of the people believed. In fact, the Gentiles were so excited about this, they said, will you come next Sabbath day and tell us who are the Gentiles? And Paul said, well, I don't know. You know, I've got a busy schedule and I think things are going to be a little tight on that. No, he jumped at the chance. And the Bible says that so many people came out to hear the gospel. Don't you wish it was that way today? (laughs) Uh, Okay, I I have a little hobby horse that I I ride on that. But anyway, I'm not going to go there. Um, Where am I going to go? Oh, these people came out in droves. And when the religious leaders of the day saw these people coming, they became so jealous that they began to actively oppose the work that Paul and Barnabas were doing. And as you go on through that 13th chapter, you begin to see the development of that opposition. And in the process, Paul takes the Word of God and continues to present it faithfully in spite of the opposition. And now the, 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 the energy of these people there in Antioch becomes so stirred up that now they are beginning to threaten the apostles. They are beginning to, to bring down the, the possibility of real persecution upon them. And in this instant, Paul and Barnabas leave. And apparently the Lord says, now it is time to leave. I want you to go to another place. And so they leave Antioch And they go to a place called Iconium. And there they preached again to the Jews 
and to the Gentiles. And the Bible tells us that they perform many miracles there. And here, a plot arose because people began once again to oppose what Paul and Barnabas were doing. And now they got word, these guys are going to stone you to death. You better get out of town. So they did. They did a wise thing. They moved on. And from Iconium, as you go down further into that chapter, they left and they went to a town called Lystra. Now, Lystra had some very interesting um, elements to it. It was, a, it was oriented uh, dramatically to the worship of false gods. Well, here comes Paul and Barnabas, and the first thing they encounter is a man who is lame. The Bible tells us that he had no strength in his feet, and he couldn't get up, and he couldn't walk. And compassionately, Paul draws upon a divine, miraculous power that was given specifically to the the apostles and to those who were proclaiming the gospel in the first century, and they are given the opportunity now to verify the truth of their message by a miracle that they perform. And they call upon this man in the name of Christ to rise up and to walk. And the Bible tells us that this man who had been lame from his birth stands up and he begins to walk. And the people know a great miracle has taken place. So what do they do? They do what unsaved people do. They begin to worship the creature rather than the creator. And they look at Paul and Barnabas and they say, the gods have come to dwell among us. And the Bible tells us that they gave, I think it was Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes or Mercury. And then the the high priest of the temple that was at the gate of the city, so this city is really steeped in this kind of religion, he comes with others from the city to offer sacrifices before Zeus and Mercury. And here's, here's these two guys that are committed to Christ and, and they see what's happening and as it's unfolding, they say, they're going to worship us. And they take their clothes and they tear their clothes. Now that gets attention. And they rip their clothes apart and they say, we are people just like you. You need to worship the true God. Do not worship us. We are not gods. He's not Zeus. I'm not Mercury. You have to worship the true and the living God who called into creation all that exists by the word of his mouth. And that's the God before whom you must fall and worship. And the Bible says that even by their own testimony, they had a hard time restraining the people from offering sacrifices to them. But the people in Lystra were very, very fickle because After this, and as Paul and Barnabas continued to give the gospel and people began to believe, once again, the unbelieving Jews and Gentiles stirred up the people to the point where now the threats are no longer merely threats. Now the people are taking action. And the Bible tells us something very interesting. They stoned Paul. And they left him, or actually dragged him out of the city and left him for dead. Now there's an interesting little issue here that I'm not sure we're going to be able to settle. But the issue is, did Paul really die and was he resurrected by the Lord or was he merely unconscious and presumed dead? 
I'll just tell you my opinion. I think he was dead. I don't think these people stoned anybody, but what they killed him. Because when the, the Bible tells us that the disciples gathered around him, and when they did, he rose up, and then they went on to another city. You don't do that unless something miraculous has taken place. You'd have to carry him. You'd have to give him IVs. You'd have to send him through um, rehab. Um, you would call the orthopedic doctors and you would say, check this guy out. No. I might be wrong, but that's okay. The truth of the matter is, God spared his life, whether by bringing it back or by maintaining it in a condition which normally would have brought death to some other person. And then they went to Derby, And as you read on in the scriptures, you find that at Derby. They once again are faithful in proclaiming the word. They won large numbers of disciples in that city. And then here's what's interesting. When they had finished their ministry in Derby, they began to retrace their route back through the cities where they had already been. And the Bible goes on to tell us down there in verse 21 um, of chapter 14, it says, And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, where Paul had been stoned, my guess is going back there at this time in such good shape was astounding to the people at Lystra and they didn't dare stone him again. I might be wrong about that. I don't know. But I'm allowed my opinion, aren't I? Okay. Do you, do you have opinions? Okay. You're all very, very quiet today. Uh, it, it's New Year's. Okay, well, let's start the new year off right. Let's get into this. All right? He goes back to Lystra. He does okay there. He goes back to Iconium. He does okay there. He goes back to Antioch. He does okay there. He goes down to the coast again, and he winds up in a place called Italia, which is uh, identified for us down there at verse 25. And from Italia, he sails back to the west end of the Mediterranean Sea and travels, or pardon me, to the east end of the Mediterranean Sea and travels east to the city of Antioch from which he had been sent as a missionary. He and Barnabas, they were sent and they go back. And you know what the Bible tells us they did? They gave a report. They let the people know what they were doing. They, can you imagine what that would have been like sitting there listening to Paul and Barnabas describe all of these experiences that they've had on the, that first missionary journey? Uh, there were no football games in the afternoon to disrupt this. They could sit and they could listen. My guess, again, is that the people sat with rapt attention, but best of all, they rejoiced with the fruit that these men had borne for the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, I said to you earlier, that if anybody had a reason to be unfaithful, these two guys did. And here's where I want you to really pay close attention. Because I believe that these are the same elements that can bring about unfaithfulness in God's people today. And these are the issues against which we must be very, very careful to defend ourselves. The first is, they were tempted by a new environment. Do you know what it's like to go someplace where nobody knows you? 
and, and the sense of freedom that you have? Nobody knows me here. I can, I can kind of do anything I want to do. I was sharing with uh, folks in our, our Sunday school class this morning how that this was a number of years ago. My wife and I had been given a, a trip to Hawaii. Pretty cool, huh? And uh, while we were over there, we went to visit a guy and a gal whose wedding I had actually performed in Wisconsin. And uh, they were on the island of Kauai. And uh, we were there over a Sunday, so we went with them to church. And the, the church that we attended was Anahola Baptist Church. And we sat through the service. And, you know, to the best of our knowledge, um, Joseph and his wife were the only ones that, that we knew. And, you know, we could get away from them and just kind of be islanders and, and just enjoy ourselves. Wouldn't you know, the service is over. And a young man comes running up to me and grabs my arm and says, you're Mr. Wingenroth. I said, yeah. He said, I was one of your Bible students when you were teaching Bible back at Emmanuel Baptist High School in Toledo, Ohio. Now I have to behave here. (laughs) The fact of the matter is we're always in the Lord's sight, aren't we? But you know how tempting it is for people when they're away from that which is familiar and where they are held accountable to just kind of let down their hair and do things that they probably wouldn't do normally and be unfaithful to the Lord. If Paul and Barnabas ever had an opportunity, it's when they went on this trip. Nobody knew them. They were on their own. New environment. We can do what we want to do. Not if you're going to be faithful. The Lord is there. It's like that guy I was golfing with one day. was having a terrible time. Seventh hole. He is just shanking the ball. He's hacking, digging up divots. And I think it's because he was nervous to be with a pastor. He was not a believer. And uh, finally, on the seventh hole, he hits this shot and just shanks the thing into the woods. And he's just frustrated as can be. And he walks over to me and he says, Preacher, I'm going into the woods and I'm going to swear. (laughs) And all I could say to him was, he can hear you there too. (laughs) Sometimes people think it's, it's, we, we remain faithful because of those to whom we have to answer eyeball to eyeball. But I'll tell you what, there's someone we have to answer to who's far more important. I want you to see a second element, failure of friends. How many followers of Jesus Christ have forsaken faithfulness to the Lord because they have watched other believers fail? My pastor growing up committed adultery. And it would be real easy to look at him and say, boy, this is just a sham. But you know what? The Lord didn't fail. He failed. And right away you'll have people throw up to you somebody that they know who is a believer who fails, and they'll say, well, if that's what Christianity is all about, I don't want any part of it. Well, let me tell you something. People who aren't Christians fail too, don't they? And believers fail. But the Lord doesn't fail. And so you don't allow the failure of a brother to dissuade you from being faithful to the Lord. John Mark went back home. Big deal. He's got to deal with that. 
I get to walk with the Lord. I get to remain faithful to Him. I don't care what anybody else does. That does not mean I am going to follow their path. I can be faithful to the Lord in spite of the failure of friends. A third element, hard work. I want to tell you something. Being a follower of Christ and serving Him is not an easy task. It is hard work. It demands long hours, and and it's inconvenient. There's always something coming up. You know, there's some ministry coming up, and and we need people to do it. Well, that wouldn't really be convenient. I I couldn't do that. Or there's some special event that's taking place that, I don't know, I I really, that's going to be an awful lot of work if I do that. And the hard work becomes very discouraging. Could you imagine if Paul and Barnabas said, you know what, this is really a hard job. I I don't think I'm going to follow through on this anymore. I know the Lord is sovereign and He would have found another way to do this. Or I should say He would have ordained another way to do it. But the fact of the matter is, Paul and Barnabas did not forsake the Lord. And as a result, we have just about all of the great doctrinal books of the Bible written by the hand of Paul under the direction of the Holy Spirit. So the hard work was not an issue. If you want an easy road... Don't become a Christian. Don't become a follower of Christ. If that's what you're looking for, that's the wrong place to go. If you're willing to say, you know, because I love the Savior and because I appreciate what He did for me, I'm willing to do whatever He calls me to do. Now you're ready to go. That's what the Lord desires. They faced opposition. And look at the, look at the, the sources of this opposition. There was satanic opposition. You remember Elymas, Bar-Jesus, at Paphos? How he resisted the apostles and the work that they were doing and he tried to dissuade uh, Sergius Paulus from believing? Here are attacks directly coming from Satan. And how many other attacks were satanically directed? The face of which could have been so discouraging that Paul and Barnabas could have said, No, we're turning around, we're heading back, it's not worth it. And they didn't do that. And then add to that all of the discouragement of people. Do people ever discourage you from walking with the Lord? You you pull out of your driveway on Sunday mornings and you're on your way to church and the people in your neighborhood know you as the church people. And they're out and they've got the newspaper under their arm and they've got the cup of coffee in their hand and they're waving and they're saying, see you later. (sighs) I want to tell you something. I would like to do that on a Sunday morning. But then you say, well, you get paid. (laughs) And I do. I can't deny that. I do. But long before I got paid, I had made up my mind. This is where I want to be with God's people. I want to be here to worship the Lord. Would I like to just sleep in on Sunday mornings? Yes, I would. Have that good cup of coffee, not flavored. It's a wussy drink. I don't know why anybody (laughs) drinks that stuff. Leave the milk for the kids. All right? Drink like a man. They've faced all kinds of rejection. 
from the people where they went. They faced all kinds of abuse. They had plots that were leveled against them, but the opposition didn't stop them. Affliction didn't stop them. They were verbally afflicted. That's probably the worst that you and I ever have to go through. People bad-mouthing us or talking behind our back or something like that. Um, really, it's, that's a, a small price to pay because the affliction these guys got was literally life and death confrontations. And as I believe, but I may be wrong, I think Paul might have been stoned to death. And if he wasn't dead, he was so badly beat up by those stones that God had to perform a miracle on his behalf to get him back on his feet and ready to go again the next day. They faced what I believe is probably the hardest one of all. Success. They face success. Here they are, embracing the power of divine influence. They have the power of the Word of God, which is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. They have the power of the Spirit of God. They have the power of their own testimony and their own transition from being a persecutor of the church to one who was now a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And they had those powers at their hands. And then there was a harvest that they reaped. And as they would go from city to city, there would be people, perhaps by the thousands. I don't know the numbers. The Bible doesn't give us those numbers. But there were many in each of these cities who would put their faith and trust in Christ. And they saw people transitioned from being dead spiritually to being made alive spiritually. And now here they are as fellow heirs with Christ following the Savior along with the Apostle Paul, standing true to the Word of God because later there would be the development of churches within this area. And the reason we know that is because of on the return trip, the Bible tells us that Paul and Barnabas reestablished within the churches a structure. They appointed elders for the church to help lead them spiritually so that each of the churches in these cities could move forward and be spiritually strong. They were very, very successful. The message they had was life-giving. It was encouraging. It was a great message. And people believed. But the struggle now is with pride. Now the issue is pride. I've succeeded. <laughs> Boy, do you know how many people got saved at this place? Well, it's nice to know many people got saved, but frankly, only the Lord knows how many were truly saved. We don't. But pride enters the picture. 
and we begin feeling really good about what we've done when the reality is it is the power of God working through us that accomplishes anything and you and I can't do anything of eternal value unless the Word of God and the Spirit of God work in and through us to help reach others for the the cause of Christ. That's where it is. This was a problem. And by the grace of God, they remained faithful and they gave the Lord all the glory because he deserves it all. And then finally, they were accountable. They became accountable. They went back and they gave a a report on what had been done and they were faithful in telling what was done. And then the Bible says they remained at Antioch and they got back in the work of the ministry even after they came back from their missionary endeavors. You and I, probably somewhere along the line, have faced at least one of these issues that has really caused us to consider walking away from our fellowship with the Lord and not being faithful to Him, giving priority to other things in our lives. And so... I said earlier, nobody can guarantee. Do you know what I would love to be able to say to you? I would love to be able to say, watch me. I will never be unfaithful to the Lord. And I guarantee you it would be a matter of days, if not less, that I would fall. Because the Lord does not put up with a self-righteous attitude. And I'm telling you this, I know I can fail. I know I can fall. I hope you'll pray for me that I won't. I hope you will pray for each other that you won't fail, that you won't fall. But instead, that we will all put into practice several principles that I believe are going to be very important for us if we're going to remain true. Let me give them to you very quickly. The first is have a settled sense of God's call. When the Lord calls us, He calls us initially to salvation, to that point where our faith and trust is placed in the finished work of Christ. And then He calls us to service, which answers one of the three great questions of all time. By the way, I have answers to every one of these. If you want to talk about these, come and talk to me later. Why am I here? Or no, 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 that's not the first. Where did I come from? I can tell you where you came from. The final question is, where am I going? I can tell you where you're going. I can tell you exactly where you're going. You're going to heaven or hell depending on which choice you make about the person of Christ. But the question in the middle, which is the one we deal with every day, why am I here? Oh, I'm here to make a good living for my family and to take good care of them. Well, that's a good thing, but that's not why you're here. Well, I'm here because I really would like to make an impact on the political scene of our country. No, that's not why you're here. Although it might be included in the reason for which you are here. You are here to serve Christ. We'll say, well, you're a preacher. You, you, you get to do that every day of the week. And, and, and for you, it's just part. No, you get to do it too. You get to do it in your home. You get to do it in the workplace. You get to do it in school. You get to do it wherever you might be. 
I am a servant of Christ and I am here to serve Him. That's why we're here. And if we settle for anything less, your reason for being here isn't any good. Just being honest. Have a focus on eternity. Um, I'm 61. I've told you that on a number of occasions because I can't believe I'm that old. I feel like I'm a kid. And I know I act like a kid. I know. You guys wait. The day will come when you turn 61 and you will remember what I said to you today because it's going to come just like that. Where did 2010 go? I'm hardly used to writing down 2010. Now I've got to write 2011. Life is a vapor. It is going by so, so quickly. And you know where my focus needs to be? Not on that which is temporary and which is fading away, but that which is eternal in heaven. Keep your focus on the eternal. Thirdly, appropriate the strength of God's Spirit. Allow the Spirit of God to fill you. Allow the Spirit of God to control you. And submit to Him every day. And finally, accept God's encouragement. You stay in the Word of God, not because there's something magical about reading the Word today, and if you don't read it today, some awful thing's going to happen to you. No! That, that, would, that would be superstitious. That would be saying the Word of God is some superstitious little book that I have to read in order to make it through the day without some tragedy. I read the Word of God because it helps me know God. And my purpose in being conformed to the image of Christ involves knowing God. This is eternal life, that you might know Him. That's what we know from the Word of God. And when you turn to the Word of God, you begin to find incredible encouragement. And you also find it from your brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's why being part of a church family is so important. We have people who go through hard times. We're we're, going to have some people go through hard times again this year if everything goes as things usually do. I might be one of them. And you know one of the great encouragements in getting through the hard times? You. And so you develop good relationships with those who are people of faith so that when the hard times come, you can stand together. It's tough to stand alone, isn't it? It's hard. Now we can stand together. going to be faithful this year? Don't. By the grace of God, we will remain faithful. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that we could spend this time in your word. And thank you for what you're going to do for us and through us. Even in this coming year, I ask, Lord, that you would help me to stay faithful to you. And I pray for these dear people that for those who don't know Christ, they would come in faith and trust Him as their Savior, even now. And Father, for those who know the Savior, I pray that we would all be faithful until that day you take us home. For it's the glory of Christ that we want to see His name lifted up. Amen.